Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Mark Sobel, Ph.D. Uh, he leads the Guided Self-Change Program at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. He's been doing research on moderate drinking since the 1970s. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book's called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Mark Sobel, is with us. I'm going to bring him on right now. Mark, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine, and thank you for having me on. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, you've been doing a lot of work in this field for many years. Uh, tell us, how did you get started with moderate drinking programs? Why were you interested in this topic? Uh, well, it's it's a long story, but I'll give you a very short version. Uh, I, I described my career, and actually my wife's also, as being mainly determined by serendipity. Uh, in, in any event, uh, as a graduate student, I found myself given direction of an NIMH grant uh, to work with a pretty chronic population, and uh, didn't know anything about the, the field, so I didn't come up through the the rank and file alcoholism community. Um, there was a fellow on the unit at the state hospital where we were doing research who maintained that uh, he was he was either going to learn to moderate his drinking or die drunk, and. Uh, mm-hmm. I attempted to convince him that that wasn't rational, and he said, why? And, of course, I realized I didn't know anything. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. uh, our whole crew to the library. And what we came back with were 23 articles that talked about people being able to reduce their drinking and none that basically presented you know, failures. Uh, and a lot of interesting things about how people were asked not to publish and such. But that's really uh, really how things got started. And then the, the other thing that was very unusual is we had available in an inpatient program uh, a, uh, a stimulated bar and, uh, and real alcohol, and we were able to study people who had had serious problems and were now detoxified, uh, able to study them both uh, cold, sober, and when they were drinking. And, you know, uh, substance, use, substance use problems are one of the only uh, mental health disorders <laughs> that we study almost entirely in the absence of symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy, but if you think about what the problems are, uh, you find hardly any studies actually looking at uh, what people are like, what a clinical population is like when mm-hmm. under the influence. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's basically how we got into it and found that, uh, found that, you know, if you gave people the opportunity to have a little and then stop in that highly controlled condition, they were in a, you know, in a hospital and they could, uh, you know, so they were safe. They weren't under the regular stresses and strains. Uh, they were able to do it, and it was a, a voluntary unit, so they could have, uh, you know, if they had three drinks in a session, they could walk out the door, walk off to the grounds, just leave the hospital, and go to the bar like a block away, but nobody ever mm-hmm. did that, mm-hmm. so that, that kind of starts you thinking about what is it that's going on. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a very short story of how of how we got into that. The, the other big thing going on at the time was uh, we're talking about the, the very early 1970s, and uh, and one of the major things going on was the first epidemiologic research was being reported, uh, and it was mm-hmm. becoming clear 
that the people who were in state hospital programs and the people who got everybody's attention were just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. very severe cases, and that there was a, a large population of people with problems that weren't as severe, and nobody was thinking about them or even mm-hmm. acknowledging them. And for mm-hmm. for people of that genre, it made ex- exceptionally good sense that, you know, if if the problem wasn't very severe, uh, maybe they would be good candidates to reduce rather than stop. And, you know, over 40 years or so, uh, literature on natural history uh, has pretty much borne that out. With people with mild problems, whether we help them or not, the most uh, likely route that they follow when they uh, improve or recover, whatever words you want to give it, uh, is to reduce their drinking. So it's kind mm-hmm, of a, mm-hmm. a natural phenomenon anyway. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, think I, I think I'll hold it there, otherwise it becomes a very long story. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you a few more questions about this. Um, now, if I recall, was this uh, for your dissertation research? Was uh, your dissertation involved with this study? Nope. 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 It was a it no, was no. job. I had finished. Uh, I finished uh, three years of graduate school, and my fellowship had ended. And uh, it was a summer job that turned into a more than four decade career. Mm-hmm. And your specialization is psychology? Yep. Yep. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, there's several experiments in the 70s. And, uh, yours, uh, Marlatz, where they uh, operated a bar mm-hmm. at the research center. Uh, would you be able to do that today? Uh, I don't know. It's a... I think that, you know, it became, uh, a few decades ago, it became a matter of political correctness. And mm-hmm. um, I just, uh, I, I, really, I really couldn't say. I don't think many people are doing it. They probably 10 years or so ago, maybe longer, I mentioned people at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism who said they were doing some uh, it's called experimental intoxication research uh, in their intramural programs that was in, in their facility. Uh, but I don't know how that turned out. It's certainly not uh, not done much, if at all, and it's kind of uh, kind of a shame because, as I say, we, we get almost all of our information secondhand. People talk about mm-hmm. things after they've happened or what happened to somebody else. But we don't actually study the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Now, when you did this study, um, did everyone choose to continue drinking, or did pe- did some people say, "I don't want to drink anymore. I'm done. I'm going to abstain"? Or, uh, well, in the in in the what what do you find in general? is that uh, I think Alan Marlatt once uh, said in his experience about 40% of people uh, who chose a moderation goal ended up stopping entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I mean, that happens, and you do get some people who don't drink for years and then start to drink a little. So both both kind of things happen. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The main, the main question I think that's uh, really of concern is uh, that existing treatments are not very attractive to somebody who has a problem, especially if they have a problem that's not very serious. And the, the epidemiologic data, both in this country, in Canada, and other places, uh, so that that's actually a pretty large population. The Institute of Medicine estimates there's about four people who have mild problems for every one person that has a severe problem. Uh, but we don't really have, with a few exceptions, most of them probably represented in your harm reduction network, uh, we don't have many programs that 
are attractive or are tailored to that population at all. And, and mm. I'm sure that in traditional programs, if they do have mild problems and they go in, they're probably going to be treated as deniers and covering up drinking, which may not be occurring. So it's kind of mm-hmm. uh, it's it's kind of a shame, but that's the way the field has been for a long time. It's finally, maybe over the last five years, maybe a few years before that, finally really started to change. Otherwise, we'd never be having this interview. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but in ter- in terms of traditional programs, uh, they're still kind of mired in the same approach that was taken in the 1960s, really. When you get down to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the traditional programs, they have terrible success rates. They don't attract people, and then they want to use coercion. And I just saw a study come out like last month that said uh, coerced treatment is completely ineffective. <laughs> the only people that uh, really benefit are those that go voluntarily. Yeah, well, I mean, that shouldn't be very surprising, really, if you think about it. But the the problem part of part of the problem is, uh, and let me let me just speak for the alcohol field because that's really where stuff started out and is is mainly located. Uh, the the alcohol field, or well, you can call it addictions now. Um, over time, and for explainable reasons, but it would take a while to explain them. Uh, it it developed a career track that's outside traditional. Uh, comprehensive training. So it's not like mm-hmm. medical training. It's not like mental health profession training. Uh, it's unto itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, Columbia, there's a center for addiction studies at Columbia University actually did a great uh, report on this in 2012. Uh, but basically, it, it runs like an, an independent uh, um I don't want to call it an organization, uh, but well, let me just say it's you know it's independent from regular health and mental health services, um, and as a result, there's not nearly enough pressure on it to uh, to change, to use evidence-based approaches, uh, and to adapt to actually attract the population it's supposed to serve. But mm-hmm. uh, there, there's no, uh, there's not. See, in medicine, about 120 years ago, uh, there was a shakedown, and mm-hmm. basically, people within medicine uh, decided that, you know, either programs like medical schools needed to be evidence-based, or they needed to not be there, and that shaped mm-hmm. up medicine pretty well. So if you if you did bleeding. Uh, you weren't going to end up being an accredited medical school. Um, mm-hmm. And most of your training, if you did bleeding, was apprentice training. Somebody would work with you for, you know, thousands of hours, maybe bleeding people until eventually they could be trusted to bleed people on their own. Uh, mm-hmm. And so in, in medicine, things shaped up in in the addictions area, the, the only pressure for that now, and we're starting to see a little of it, is with parity um, and with Obamacare, so more people getting, you know, getting insurance coverage, uh, they, the one place that pressure can come from is people who pay the bills. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you're paying for services, you have every right to ask for accountability. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess there's a little of that, but programs have been basically pretty insulated, and mm-hmm. and like I say, do, doing you know doing not much different than was done 50 years ago. And if you look at areas like anxiety treatment, uh, depression treatment, and all kinds of other health problems, you you'll be really hard pressed to find any where they say they're doing the same thing they did 50 years ago. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of amazing the 
the training for addiction counselors is completely disconnected from any research on addiction, which I found out when I tried studying for the uh, KSAC test, the addiction counseling test, and I was trying to study mm-hmm. the, the preparation guide, and everything I was supposed to memorize uh, had been debunked by the evidence that I had studied in in terms of research. Um, I actually wrote an article about it and got the uh, author of the guide really pissed off and he said, well, you know, because I was citing NISARC, you know, the National Epidemiological Study of Alcohol and Related Conditions. And he said, oh, well, this doesn't apply because most of the people in NISARC were smokers and smoking is really easy to quit, which is the exact opposite of what NISARC concluded. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so it's, it's uh, you know, the other, the other thing is, uh, and, and this really, I mean, sticks in my craw, because uh, we train, um, my wife and I, we train doctoral clinical psychology students. Mm-hmm. Uh, in traditional addiction training, there is very little comprehensive mental health training, even mm-hmm. though our data show that by the time people get to a traditional substance abuse program, typically somewhere around 50 to 70% will have some kind of comorbidity. And mm-hmm. And the reason for that, I think, is you know, if you just have one problem, uh, a lot of people, you, you can get along. Like, you know, you can be somewhat depressed and life can suck, but you can get up in the morning, have your breakfast, go to work, do your chores, come home, eat dinner, watch TV, not go to treatment and get by for a long time. You can do the same thing if you have a, a drinking problem or even another substance abuse problem that's not too bad. But when you throw in another major problem, something like, say, depression, uh, it gets harder to cope. And, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people who come to, pro- to treatment programs have other problems besides their substance use problems, but we have staff that aren't trained to handle that and in many cases who feel that, oh, that will all disappear, you know, once you take care of the substance use problem. And, you know, in, in mm-hmm. other fields, that would be considered, you certainly wouldn't get accredited, and, and a lot of people would consider it not terribly ethical. But in mm-hmm. the addiction field, uh, it's, it's par for the course. And like I said, we're, we're a separate, it's a separate domain. So it, it doesn't come under the same rule. That, uh, you know, like in my program, in the program where we train people, we're, you know, we're training psychologists, so we're subject to you know, all the, the regulations and the ethics code and whatever. Um, addictions counseling has a totally separate uh, set of regulators and such. And as you found out, the training is not terribly evidence-based. Yeah, they, they actually train them in things that are wrong. Uh, that's why I couldn't take the test. I got so sick of the the manual trying to memorize all these things that I knew were wrong. I just... I had kind of like throw the manual aside and say, hey, you know, I, I got to stop this for now. So uh, I'm pursuing a PhD in psychology instead right now <laughs> of this uh, addiction cr- credential for which I only, well, in many states, all you need is a GED or a high school diploma yeah. to become an addiction counselor. Yeah, the, yeah I think, that, I think there's only one state. Well, in the Columbia report, I think as of 2012, there was only one state that required a master's degree. And like you said, several mm-hmm. didn't even require a high school graduation to get a GED. Mm-hmm. Then again, you don't need to get paid as much. So from an insurance standpoint, I guess there's some attraction. <laughs> well, the traditional addiction treatment paradigm uh, for the uh, you know the Hazelden model, the Minnesota model is certainly a, a great way to make money for the organization because you have very low paid counselors doing very big groups of people, um, so all the money can get funneled up into uh, salaries of these guys that run the, the program who are like paying themselves a million dollars a year. Well, <laughs> I've never been on that side of things. So, 
But, uh, well, there is. You know, back in the 80s, they actually coined the term. It's not my term. Uh, people in the field coined the term the alcoholism treatment industry. And then, uh, and I think it was in the mid-80s, about, I think it was 80% of programs nationally were 28 days. Uh, and mm-hmm. by the early 90s, fewer than 10% were. Now, that was where insurance companies played a big role because they finally got to reading the literature and decided uh, they were spending, you know, uh, a lot of money without any evidence. Uh, I mean, for, for, from the insurance standpoint, for something that costs a lot more money than outpatients say, uh, you, you have to either provide, uh, but it's, it's not just enough to to say your people do as well. You have to provide mm-hmm. enough value, enough value added, to make it worth the extra expenditures. Mm-hmm. Was, they didn't even have the data that people did just as well. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. Even if people did just as well, and if you were an insurance company, which kind of program would you would you pay for? Mm-hmm. Residential or, or outpatient? So, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I don't know. It's been a long time since I looked at that side of things. I understand with Obamacare, there's, uh, I guess, an, an upflow of money, but I, I really don't personally have, have any idea, and we've never done stuff for profit or that. So, uh, But I think what, what you're saying probably has has some validity. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I went through... Uh, uh, alcoholism treatment in the mid 90s, which was uh, about the point where the insurance companies were really cracking down. Um, they'd started a little earlier, and you know I would meet people there in treatment and say, "How many times have you been through treatment before?" Oh, 25 times, 30 times. Mm-hmm. Um, residential stays, you know. You know, and the insurance companies are paying like for these guys to go through treatment thirty times at what? What would it be now? Today it's like thirty thousand dollars a pop. <laughs> it's no wonder the insurance companies had to crack yeah. down. They were bleeding money and getting no results. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, I I did. Uh, uh, participated in a, a conference put on by, I won't name the insurance company, but it was one of the biggest in the country. Uh, and there, the whole idea was uh, to convince uh, representatives from 158 industries that had insurance with them that where their employees with alcohol problems should be is on the job and in outpatient treatment. And the, the, the vice president of the country Company, the insurance company had told me before that, he said they they found that they'd been spending a third of all their insurance payouts at that time. This is in the, I think in the mid-80s, I can't remember for sure, on 28-day programs. And when they looked at it more carefully, they found some people had been in like three programs during a 12-month period. And only mm-hmm. then did they finally go to the literature to see what is it we're paying for. Because he said when they mm-hmm. started out, they just asked the quote experts, "What should we do? What's the you know what's the right thing, the best thing?" And they were told, you know, 28 days. You know, I mean, I, I'm gonna say Hazel, that I had a, a case referred to to our clinic when uh, we were down in Tennessee uh, back in the 70s, uh, and Hazel herself, I was very impressed with the records they sent me on the guy. They had done all kinds of psychological tests, very very good records. Uh, but as you probably know, uh, the, there were it was a spat. There were hundreds of programs that developed kind of based on the model, but they didn't adhere at all to the quality standards that Hazelden was having. It was that, mm-hmm. that was very clear, and uh, and that's that's a good part of what got the field in trouble. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, at least with Hazelden, they did have they did have you know, professionals, and they did have multidisciplinary teams and and things like that. I mean, I, I'm not a big advocate of the model. But on the other hand, 
uh, I'm, I'm an advocate of anything that will help someone and that the person uh, thinks is a reasonable thing for them to participate in. So if somebody comes into our clinic saying, you know, and, and they say, you know, in the past, those steps worked really well for them and they just kind of got derailed, uh, certainly one of one of the strongest possibilities would be just to, you know, how do we get you re-involved? Mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not a matter of, not a matter of ideological disputes. In the end, it's, it's helping a person. And you can't mm-hmm. help a person unless unless they're interested in, in participating on their side. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, there seems a lot of evidence that people do well with the goals that they choose for themselves, regardless of if their goal is to quit drinking or to moderate or to be safer or whatever. But, you know, if you try to change somebody's goal and force them into a different goal, they're not going to do as well. Yep. Well, you know, there's uh, back, back in 1995, or at least that's when it was published, uh, Griffith Edwards, who was the, the publisher, the, the the editor of the journal uh, Addiction, uh, he asked us to do an, an editorial on basically on moderation goals, and he came up with three three conclusions in that, which he had like nine people comment on them, including some pretty strong traditionalists like Max Glatt, the psychiatrist over in England, and nobody took issue with these three conclusions, and I presented them at uh, some international conferences uh, uh, just uh, like three or four years ago, and and nobody took issue with them there. And the three conclusions were this. Uh, Two are pretty straightforward. One is people who have very serious problems, when they recover, uh, they usually do it by stopping completely. People Mm -hmm. who have problems that aren't that serious, when they recover, they usually, well, I'm talking about like 75% or so, do it by reducing their drinking to uh, to low-risk levels and not having consequences. Uh, here's the third conclusion. This is the tricky one. Uh, <laughs> what you do in treatment seems to have nothing to do with that. That's <laughs> why in, in our treatment program, uh, we, we, emphasize, we emphasize choice for people. Because there is some evidence uh, in the psychological literature that if people have, that people will work harder to achieve a goal that they've chosen for themselves. And quite frankly, also it's easier to get them to to change goals if they set it for themselves and they also realize that they're not getting there. Uh, so since that's the case, since since people will, be, will persevere more and work harder if they make the choice. What we did in, in our treatment, we, we build in having people make the choice. So like with alcohol, we'll, we'll inform people uh, of contraindications. We strongly inform them, you know, if you have diabetes, you have gout, we'll make sure that, that you know very well that drinking, you know, is very likely to exacerbate your problems, not not just the drinking problem, but but that other problem. Uh, but still, in the in the end, if I'm going to work with somebody in, in treatment, uh, I want to know what they're really trying to do. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it all becomes a fiction, and becomes you know kind of a masquerade. And and at the times we're working together, would help the most. They're they're not available. Mm-hmm. In, in the therapy situation. So, mm-hmm. you know, even if, I mean, certainly we've had in, in our program, uh, we've, we've had, you know, we, what we have, we have doctoral students uh, who we supervise personally. And, you know, occasionally we have someone who, despite knowing the, the contraindication, like say, say there's medical contraindications, uh, and they say, you know, I know all that, I understand that, but doggone it, this is what I'm going to try and do. This is all, you know, this is what I want. Uh, mm-hmm. They may a lot of times they may say it's a, it's an interim goal. I just I don't think I can stop now, but 
but I mm-hmm. am willing to work here on, you know, cutting it in half or whatever. So, you know, foot in the door, fine. Uh, with people like that, like I say, if, if you know what they're trying to do and they know that they can talk to you about that, uh, then you're working together. And if they're not mm-hmm. achieving what they want, it's pretty easy. You just reflect it back to them and say, well, look, this is, you know, this is what you've set out to do. Kind of here's where you've been. You know, what now? Mm-hmm. And they really have two choices. One is one is work harder. And the other choice is, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe I need to try something else. Mm-hmm. But it's them saying it. It's not you saying it. And that's really the, uh, you know, the important thing. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, in traditional treatment, well, you're, you're, you know, in traditional treatment, for instance, if somebody violates the rules, if somebody uses, <laughs> they get mm-hmm. punished, right? You know, mm-hmm. what other health or mental health problem is there where service providers typically punish people for manifesting symptoms of the disorder? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> try and think of something where, you know, if a diabetic goes out, they, you know, they went off their diet. Does the doctor kick them out of treatment? Mm-hmm. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. If a schizophrenic, you know, stops taking medications because the effects on libido or, or the side effects are too severe, uh, and now they start hallucinating or whatever, do they get kicked out of treatment? No. That would be considered, you know, it would be considered unethical. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we have a field where, uh, especially in residential programs of that, if you manifest symptoms of the disorder, then you're kicked out of the program. doesn't make <laughs> sense, at least to me. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, oh, I have a question for you because you were talking about severity of the problem. And how do you define severity? Is it solely in terms of number of drinks per week? And per day, or is that less important? Are there other factors that define severity? So that's that's an, an age-old conundrum kind of question. Uh, but that both both things are important. Uh, look, the important the the amount that a person uses uh, has especially has importance over the long run in terms of mm-hmm. organic damage. And uh, mm-hmm. part of the problem here is the phenomenon of tolerance. And as I'm sure you know, you're familiar with, uh, you know, the, uh, the the body likes to adapt. And mm-hmm. so, and alcohol is a great example for this. So, as you practice drinking, uh, which depresses the nervous system, uh, the the body's natural reaction to that is what we call the opponent process. It it stimulates. And that's what we call tolerance. So, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you were 17, you could have, you know, three drinks would lock, knock you for a loop. By the time you're 22, three drinks is just a little buzz on, but, you know, you're fine. Now you're 27 and three drinks is nothing. You've got to have, mm-hmm. you know, at least nine. Uh, the thing is, you know, tolerance is, is kind of the adaptation. So the same amount doesn't affect you as much. And so... Mm-hmm. If you're chasing the effect, what you're going to do is use more. And that's mm-hmm. the problem you get into as you're chasing the effect, that, you know, you use more and more and more, and it, it puts a strain on, you know, your, your organ system. Uh, the other thing that goes on is that even though tolerance is such that for many things, like well-practiced psychomotor behaviors, driving your car home from the same bar, you know, night after night, uh, we adapt pretty well. The, uh, the kind of circumstance tolerance doesn't develop for much at all is unfortunately a circumstance such as uh, you have to make, you have to, you have to p- attend to multiple channels of information and make rapid decisions. Then your performance goes all to hell. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. if you're driving home on a rainy night, you know, and a bicycle comes riding out of the side or various things like that, uh, those are exactly the kind of situations <laughs> where 
you want to be able to attend to things and make correct rapid decisions. So, yeah, so quantity matters. But the other part that matters is uh, its consequences, how it impacts a person's life. And there's so many variables that affect that that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a very individualized thing. You know, if you may you may live with somebody who's very sensitive to the issues and really, you know, becomes confrontational or, you know, points out all kinds of things to you. Or you may live with somebody who kind of shares your problems and, uh, and, you know, you can feed off each other. I mean, it's all kinds of things like that. You know, if, you, if you walk to work or you're rich and have a chauffeur, uh, you're not going to get picked up for DUI. So mm-hmm. in, terms, in terms of severity, uh, even though it doesn't figure into the diagnostic manuals much, uh, well, I've always found one that really makes a difference to me is whether the person's been physically dependent. Because mm-hmm. if they've been physically dependent, it tells me they probably have been drinking... I'm the only one in the house, and the dog's locked out of the room, but I can't do anything about it if you hear the barks <laughs> in the background. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to remember where I was. I was talking about, oh, with, uh, with, if a person's been physically dependent, then, you know, they probably have a pretty long drinking history of increasingly heavy drinking. And mm-hmm. part of the reason for that is that to be physically dependent, you pretty much have to keep alcohol in your body around the clock. And mm-hmm. most people simply aren't capable of doing that without a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to develop enough tolerance that you're going to be drinking maybe a, you know, maybe the equivalent of a fifth of whiskey a day in some cases to uh, mm-hmm. just to maintain uh, so it tells me you probably have a history. It tells me you you likely you're very likely to have some kind of organic problems going on. Uh, a major thing it tells me, and this is kind of in the subtext of diagnostic criteria, is the alcohol has become a very important, if not dominant, feature in your life. So making mm-hmm. sure you have access, being able to use it. Recovering from, you know, consequences of use or problems of use uh, is going to be a main feature of your life. Whereas uh, for a lot of other people, a lot of the people we'll see in in our clinic, uh, we call them problem drinkers. You know, they haven't been physically dependent or anything. And it's kind of like there's one, one area of their life, one slice of the pie that's kind of out of control. Mm-hmm. And... Needless to say, uh, it's a lot easier working with someone who's, uh, who's who has lots of times where they're functioning just fine and such. Uh, it fits very well with the kind of uh, cognitive behavioral conception uh, in terms of, you know, the drinking serving certain purposes uh, and that it occurs at certain times. Uh, whereas for somebody who's physically dependent, that's kind of like dependence on nicotine. You know, with people who are regular smokers, even though they may tell you, oh, they're more likely to smoke when they're stressed for that, studies have found that, you know, once, somebody, once somebody's physically dependent on nicotine, the absolute best predictor of when they're going to take their next cigarette is their blood nicotine level. <laughs> it starts to go mm-hmm. down and they'll normalize themselves because having nicotine in their system is the normal state for them. That's the way their mm-hmm. system is adjusted. Um, so the same thing, like I say, somebody, uh, somebody who's physically dependent, uh, certainly a major motivation of the drinking is just to, to maintain the dependence and not go into withdrawals. But for problem drinkers who work, for somebody who, you know, uh, the Thursday night poker games where things really get out of hand, this kind of stuff, uh, you don't have those kinds of issues, and uh, usually the functions served by the drinking uh, are, are pretty different and, and can be identified. And what, what we do in our treatment, uh, the reason we call it diet itself change is we, we, have, we have our clients take the first shot at analyzing their own behavior. 
They also take the first shot at coming up with their treatment plan. Now, you know, we help them refine it and everything, but uh, people are people are really good at this kind of thing. If you just kind of show them, you know, some of the rules about how to do it, people are, are actually pretty good at analyzing their behavior. And for people who have drinking problems that aren't severe, very often they just haven't sat down and taken an hour or two to think about what mm-hmm. the heck's going on. Uh, and so, you know, they come in, we always tell our students, you know, when, when you're doing an assessment, the person is also assessing themselves. And mm-hmm. like you said, for, for people whose problems aren't severe, it's very often the first time they've really, they've really done something like that. So no wonder, you know, a fair number of them, it's, you know, with very few sessions, kind of get things in hand. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. kind of, you know, kind of rational. Uh, <laughs> the only thing you're rational is that you're one of the few programs uh, in our area, we may be the only one in our area that people can come to to get that kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I find this question is still interesting to me. Um, I've been physically dependent on alcohol a couple times in my life. And, uh, you know, but I, I went from drinking typically 75 drinks a week uh, to now drinking 17, one seven. Um, mm-hmm. And I drink them all on one day. And I abstain six days out of the week. And, okay. uh, you know, which it works fine for me. I don't leave the house when I drink. I certainly don't drink and drive. I don't drive yeah. sober either. I don't drive, period. I'm in New York City. I take the subway, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah. you know, I don't leave the house when I drink. Uh, but, you know, I drink one day a week. And, you know, because I used to drink, you know, sometimes four days a week. Uh, sometimes I was at more than 75 uh, drinks a week, and that was when I was physically dependent and drinking daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I found quite a number of people that uh, came to our ham self-help groups who kind of did the same thing. They went from really large numbers many days a week um, to they want to drink safely once a week and then not leave it alone the rest of the week. Yeah, you know, it's it's actually interesting because uh in in several studies that we've done but uh, but especially we actually had good data on it in, in one uh uh published in two thousand nine was a randomized controlled trial. But basically uh a, a rather typical finding we found in studies where where you allow moderation goals is mm-hmm. that uh well first of all people People who choose that uh, usually have, uh, in this particular study, as a group, they averaged about 30% of the days were were low-level drinking. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their outcome, what happened was, uh, and I bring this up because it's kind of relevant to you, what you were saying, what happened was it wasn't that moderation days increased. Moderation days actually stayed about the same. What happened mm-hmm. was that... Uh, heavy drinking days dramatically decreased and abstinent mm-hmm. days increased. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is kind of interesting. Now, I would draw one distinction. When, when we have people in treatment, uh, kind of the, well, what, what we explain to people is uh, that because of tolerance, uh, it's really better to consider drinking as a social convenience rather than drinking for effect. The reason mm-hmm. being that, you know, drinking for effect, you'll have to increase, 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 and then, you know, you've been there, so you kind of understand that. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas what, what you're doing is kind of, you know, like you're you're allowing yourself one day of fairly heavy intoxication. I don't know if you ever measured your blood alcohol level, but... Uh, you know, it'd probably be up there a bit. So, uh, I mean, it's it's probably a more risky alternative. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, uh, a, a lot of things have to do with, it sounds like you take a lot of safety precautions to make mm-hmm. sure troubles don't happen. Uh, the major thing I would be concerned about uh, really would be, 
to see medical issues that could develop over time. And part mm-hmm. of that will have to do with, with so there's kind of two different things. One is just the total amount of alcohol the body has to process, and that affects stuff like the liver and that. Uh, mm-hmm. The other is the, the blood alcohol level that you drive it up to. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't we don't know a whole lot about that, but uh, I mean, the, you know, you're, you're gonna you're gonna have brain effects more with a high blood alcohol level, I would think. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but you know, but like you say, I mean, you know, com- compared to being physically dependent, uh, it's there's no comparison. <laughs> and uh, the the mm-hmm. the other part the other part is safety, just you know. Uh, not taking the risk. I mean, of course, you're, ta- you're taking a bit of a risk, but but you know, in, in a much more uh, uh, I don't know. Can you take a prudent risk? Yeah, yeah I understand what I you think. That's what I mean, you're doing. Our, our program. Ahead I mean, I can't huge. say that you're not taking a risk if if you're having 17 in a day. Uh, but I can say that's colossally better than being physically dependent. And I can say that doing things like not driving, not uh, I'm sure there's probably a whole set of things you could list off that you won't do uh, mm-hmm. at that time, uh, is, you know, a, a lot better outcome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I won't do it. And, and the big thing well, is that you're the, you're the guy who does it. it. It has to be something that that you'll live with. I'm not gonna. Uh, <laughs> it it doesn't make sense to pass judgment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, when I'm drinking, I, mean, I won't do the anything. The only one who gets to I, judge it is you. When I'm drinking, I won't do anything except watch movies. All I do is watch movies, streaming, and that's it. So it's pretty safe. Uh, but that's one thing in yeah. our program that is our huge emphasis, that is our number one emphasis, is first thing, be safe. Don't kill yourself or anybody else. Plan your transportation. Yeah. You know, Plan so that you're safe. Even if you're not ready to cut down any amount, if you don't want to change your drinking amounts, oh, be safe first. Don't kill yourself. Don't kill somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important because, you know, I mean, it is. It's, it's it's a cliche, but it is true that you know if 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 there if it was anything else going on causing the amount of societal problems that we have from drinking, uh, it would get a huge amount of attention. But it just doesn't, and that kind of reflects society's ambivalence as as it is. But, you know, I mean, drunk driving is a very real phenomenon. And the people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and very innocent people get hurt and killed. And lives get ruined by people, you know, going to jail and the lawyer's fees and everything. It's, it's, you know, it's important stuff quite aside, in a sense, from the drinking. Because, like you say, you don't, you don't have to drive. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you can find ways to plan your life to... Protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I learned really from volunteering at Needle Exchange, where it's really I borrowed all my ideas from Needle Exchange. They were already kind of developed for drug users. Yeah. It's like you know, if you got to shoot heroin, use a clean needle. We're not going to stop you. In fact, the yeah. more heroin you shoot, the more clean needles we will give you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's uh, you know we we have in, in society uh, the 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 moral side of things uh, sometimes sometimes gets in the way, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be moral, but I'm saying you know we we get our priorities kind of screwed up, and mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like well. Yeah, we'll take the risk that people will get HIV or, you know, kill themselves from an infection or, or tie up tons of money by being in the hospital for six months, uh, rather than help them minimize the consequences if if things go wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, 
to me, the other way around is immoral. If you're not, if you're not looking to, to help people, uh, that's a hell of a sacrifice to make. But, you know, as, as you well know, you know, in this country, we're very, very moralistic on some things. Yeah, uh, we're moralistic on strange things. To me, there's nothing inherently immoral about ingesting uh, basically any psychoactive substance. You know, there's nothing inherently immoral about ingesting heroin or alcohol. It's only, uh, you know, the, the negative consequences it might have, which can large, can basically be avoided. You know, we there have been a lot of functioning, uh, you know, opioid addicts throughout history. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, we, we just tend to take a very simplistic view. Uh, and one of the problems, of course, is because things have been so highly stigmatized, uh, you don't, people don't introduce themselves as, you know, Hi, I shoot up now and then, but I don't get into <laughs> trouble. Now, I'm, I'm now, you know, when I say that, I'm not saying people should. But I'm just saying, you know, mm-hmm. there are certain things that you're better off not talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for one thing, people won't believe you. And for mm-hmm. the other, even if they do, uh, it just, you know, you're, you're, you're immediately stereotyping yourself. So smart people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, when we we did we did you know some pretty large studies of uh, at the time we called them natural recoveries, now we call them self change. Way back when it used to be called spontaneous remission, but of of people who you know overcame alcohol problems by themselves, and uh, we would find people sometimes who we had everything had to be confirmed. Uh, we had interviews with collaterals that they would provide, so other informants who would verify that they did, in fact, have uh, a serious drinking problem for at least three years. And then they'd have to have collaterals to verify that they hadn't had any problem for at least three years. Uh, and in a surprising number of cases, people had to come up with with uh, collaterals from the past, people from their past we could interview because, because – in their present social situation, circle, friends, spouse, or whatever, uh, those people didn't know about the past. Mm-hmm, so they actually mm-hmm. had to dig somebody up to, you know, to to confirm that, in fact, they had all these problems. And, mm-hmm. you know, you might say, well, why didn't they just tell their new friends? Well, obviously, you know, it's because it's it put people get put prisms in their glasses and once you tell them that they look at mm-hmm, you differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting together with you, you know, you know, should I offer a drink? Should I not offer a drink? And blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just, uh, it, it makes much more sense for a lot of people just to let the bath be the bath and just, you know, <laughs> bury it and leave it there. So, mm-hmm. so like I say, people who are getting along uh, they're not going to be out there bragging. Mm-hmm. They can do it. They just want to stay in the background. And frankly, looking at it through their eyes, it's probably a good decision. Oh, I agree. Uh, you know, I totally agree that for almost everybody, that's the right decision, except for me because I'm, I'm the program founder and program leader, well, yeah. so I can talk about it all I yeah. want. But the interesting, one interesting thing, you know, as soon as I start saying that I do harm reduction for alcohol and all this, the first thing is people say is, well, you don't drink, right? No. Yes, I drink. I rarely... uh... (laughs) Go ahead. I was going to say I rarely socially drink. Um, About once a month I drink moderately in a social situation. Um, but I prefer to abstain uh, or have my one day yeah. of intoxication a week. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got something that works. So, like I say, you know, it's it's uh, it's 
is a, this is a field where too many people get get up on uh, soapboxes and give you know self righteous lectures, and <laughs> we got enough of that going on with political campaigning. <laughs> don't need to add to it in the addiction field. <laughs> yeah, our participants. I just think in it's, our I mean, group... it's, it's really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just saying it's it's really great that uh, this whole kind of discussion and the things you do and your blog and your book and all that, you know, like 20 years ago, uh, would have. Let's say I'm. I'm I'm quite sure it wouldn't have made much of a mark mm-hmm. and and might have brought you real problems. But, you know, it's it's nice to see some rational thinking, you know, finally making inroads into this area which affects so many people in the in the country. Um and mm-hmm. and where the where the options are so few. But mm-hmm. they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the Internet so if there's has anybody really... In, uh, I was just going to say, if there's anybody in the Fort Lauderdale area, uh, that's where our clinic's located, Nova Southeastern University, we do serve, uh, we serve the public. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're welcome welcome to give us a try. Guided self-change clinic is on the, the Internet for the university. Uh, mm-hmm. I can give the phone number if you want, but <laughs> oh, go ahead. I don't want to do advertising. So, nine five four two six two. I guess I would call. I would call five eight seven three. Because that contacts our coordinators, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, find out more about the program. But if you go on the internet, just look up www.nova.nova.edu and it puts slash GSC for guidance self change. And you mm-hmm. can find out about the program and there's even self help things. We even made a uh uh an, an iPhone and iPad app that people can use on their own. We call it I self change. And it's available for mm-hmm. free from the uh from the uh, app store. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you go to our website, our therapist listing, uh, the Guided Self-Change program is also listed there, so you can find it from the HAMS Excellent. website as well. Um, and I was just going to say the Internet has, uh, I think it's done us a lot of good. It's got a lot of information out there. Of course, there's a lot of misinformation too, but the, you know, a lot of people are finding out the good information about drinking, moderate drinking, and, you know, it's helped to reach a lot of people. And our program is mostly done online, so we have people all over the world. And yeah. that's a it's a great thing. I was going to say very quickly, uh, people in our program, they're all over the place. I would say actually the majority mm-hmm. have actually picked uh, moderate drinking, you know, what you would consider standard limits for themselves. Mm-hmm. Some of our people, you know, they, they do like to, uh, you know, cut loose once in a while. But, you know, people made huge changes and the nice thing is people can do whatever they want yeah. and well we're about and, out of and time you know, uh, <laughs> oh okay i was just going to say with you know uh even with traditional programs it's not like people don't cut loose now and then it's just that mm-hmm. uh those are un- unplanned circumstances <laughs> and we call them relapses <laughs> but they're pretty frequent so <laughs> Alan Marlatt used to talk about people people having a programmed relapse. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I but, think you know pretty much a safety net kind of thing. Yeah, I think the problem with the traditional program is when people relapse, they do it really badly, mm-hmm. really unsafely. They're filled with guilt, and they go crazy, and they do crazy shit. And it's much better to be safe. Yeah, well, that that and also the 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 feeling if you've kind of bought the ideology that that's the kind of person you are, then it's like once the floodgates are open, you know, uh, it's it's like permission to do whatever until you, mm-hmm. until your body or the authorities or you know or some or a boss or a spouse finally you know finally intervenes, and that part's mm-hmm. really unfortunate. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, just because things get out of hand one day doesn't mean that it has to continue the next day at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if but if you have a strong belief that that's the type of person you're, that is built into you, uh, it makes the likelihood of it continuing, you know, very strong. Mm-hmm. Well, we are out of time now, so I would like to thank you for being our guest okay. this evening. And everybody, we'll see you all next. We'll see you all next time. Maybe next week we'll have another show. Next time we have another show. So thank you, everyone. Good night. Good night. Thanks a lot for having me. <laughs>